So a number of years ago, um, I began to notice something that happened within me, and this might have happened to some of you by the looks of it, I would say yes. But I remember sitting at a restaurant, and I was looking at a menu, and it was like, I thought, man, the lighting must be terrible in here, because I, I can't really see this. And I stretched my arms a little bit, and I was like, right in focus. Hey, a little bit long, it worked out great. So I thought, well, no problem, no big deal, didn't think too much about it. And then a little time passed, and I noticed that every time I would sit down, instead of having to adjust, I would just automatically go to here, and then eventually to here, and then eventually I realized my arms were no longer long enough to read the menu at a restaurant, and then it got to be where I had to hand Annette the menu across the table so I could actually read the thing. So I went and got my eyes checked, and I, I got to tell you something. I'm not, no knock on, on, on that profession, but there's something to me that's very intimidating about that machine that you sit at and you look at. You know, you may know what I'm talking about. You know, it's, it's like a test that you can never pass because it's like, okay, is it, is it clear here or is it clear there? And I'm like, yeah, both. Was it clear here? Is it clear there? I'm going, I know she's not changing those. This is a trick. Everybody feel that way? And sure enough, I mean, I, and it feels so subjective. And then what if I'm having a bad eye day anyway? What if my allergies are acting up and I'm, I'm going to get the wrong prescription? I mean, every time it's like, man, is, really? Is this going to help at all? And uh, sure enough, I went and got that done. My uncle knew a guy, this was up in Lubbock, and he knew a guy who ran a, a, a lab where they did the grinding of the lenses and all that and the finish work. And so he, he got me connected with him, and then they called me and said, your glasses are ready. I said, great. And so I went to see this guy, and I walk in this, pl in this building. The front is open. It has glass, and there's like a shop behind it that, where they do all their work, the lab. And uh, he said, all right, I want to walk you over to the window. So we walked over to the window, and we looked out, and sure enough, you know, there's signs. There's other buildings. He says, read that sign over there. Read that sign over there, and look at that tree and those bushes over there. And I'm like... Yeah, yeah, it looks normal to me. This is what I'm used to. He says, now put these on. So he handed me the glasses for the first time, and I'm kind of thinking, whatever. He's, he's like building this up like it's a big deal. I put them on, and it's like, whoa. I just stepped through the wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's like all of a sudden there's a whole other world there. I did not realize trees had individual leaves for about five years. It was just this green, beautiful thing. And not only that, but the colors were vivid. And all of a sudden, I was seeing life in high definition. It's like the first time you saw a 4K TV or a high definition TV, and it messed it up for you a little bit because you could see the lighting and the pores of their skin. And it was like almost too much. It's almost overwhelming. And I remember looking, and I was reading signs that I couldn't read, and I was seeing clarity that I hadn't seen. And I was like, this is amazing. But listen, that did not compare to what happened at night when I was driving. I did not realize how bad my sight had gotten as far as driving at night. I'm just driving. I know where I'm going, so I don't think about it. All of a sudden, colors came alive. I mean, signs were bright. The blues were deep. The reds were rich. And everything had clarity and definition and it's like the world just came alive. Because sometimes we don't know that we can't see until we can actually see again. And I had lost high definition. 
as we look into a new year, and it's always cliche, and I tend to, re- to resist being too cliche, but I can't help it with this year. 2020, a new decade, a new year, a new beginning, and it's 2020. I mean, I remember, I was telling somebody about this earlier, I actually remember writing in my big chief tablet with a number two lead pencil, my name in the upper corner, putting 1968 on there. And the thought of not, let's not even talk about 2020, what about just 2000? The thought of that just seemed like forever off. And here we are at 2020, and we're all here, and we have a pulse. It's pretty amazing. So what are we going to, the next three weeks, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about seeing 2020. What does it mean to have clarity? What does it mean to put a new set of glasses on for a new year, a new lens, so to speak, which I just noticed I need to clean mine really bad. <laughs> but what, is it, what does it look like to look and see with clarity and definition? We're going to cover some different topics. And this week, we're going to talk about this, the power of encouraging yourself in the Lord. It's one thing to be you know, self-help and all that, but... There's something about encouraging yourself in the Lord, and there's a principle. We're going to look into King David's life before he was announced as king, although he was anointed as king. He had not taken his rightful place yet. So we're going to look into that story. We're going to see an opportunity where he had to encourage himself in the Lord. I think you're going to relate to this event, to this historical event, this story. So as we do, can we pray? Father, in the name of Jesus, as we talk about vision into a new year, I'm asking a favor of you as a son to a good father. Would you open our eyes that we would see with clarity? Open our ears that we would hear with definition. Open our hearts that we would know with certainty the truth that makes us free. Father, give us the grace to put on the glasses of faith that we would walk by faith not just by sight. So, Lord, open the Scripture to us today. Open your Word, and I pray when we walk out of this place, we'll have put on a new set of lenses as we engage a new year. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen and amen. So, I want to talk about this amazing story. Now, here's what I want to do before we even talk about the story. Remember, context is king. Need to realize something. As we read, now it's a little easier in the New Testament where we read a story, seems a little more relevant. We can connect to it because we spend more time there. But when we go to the Old Testament, there's a tendency to see it as so ancient. And it's another culture. It's an Eastern culture. It's so easy to think that they just exist in history or they exist in the pages of a book when in fact these were real people. Real people. Turn to your neighbor and say, real people. These are real people with real emotions, real situations, real feelings. They're real people. So as we read this account, I want you to reorient your thinking, and we're talking about vision, put a fresh set of glasses on, and see them as people, and insert yourself into the pages of Scripture so that as I read it and as we look at it together, you could say, how would I be in that situation? Now, it may not be the same situation, but are the dynamics, have human dynamics really changed since the garden? (laughs) Dynamics haven't changed. Situations have, but not the dynamics themselves. 
And so as we step into the pages of the Old Testament, I want to invite you to insert yourself into the scenario. And hopefully I can help you do that along the way. So listen to this. 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 30. Now understand, David and 600 of his men had been basically on the lamb. They had been running because Saul was after David. In fact, it got so bad at one point that David had to actually go into Philistine territory and request to, take, uh, to, have, to live there in exile, a place of respite. And so he's actually in that area, but even that goes south at one point because the leader of the Philistines, or the Philistines, begins to question David and worry and get concerned about David because he saw great power and great authority on David as a leader. So he got concerned. So he began to now create an uncomfortable situation where David was going to have to go again. So he was going from place to place with this men, and they ended up in this area in a place called Ziklag. Ziklag had been uh, under siege. It was in the southern part of Judah, south of Jerusalem, east or west of Jerusalem, uh, in the Negev Valley, which is a desert. It's a, it's a huge, huge, massive desert just outside of the Dead Sea. So it's this really barren, dark, stark place. And here they find themselves on the run in Ziklag. And while they're away with his 600 men, he leaves the village unprotected. And while the women and children are there in Ziklag, another group called the Amalekites, they come in and they were raiding marauders. Everywhere they went, there was destruction and decimation. There was no mercy shown by the Amalekites. Everywhere they went, while David and them are off, the families are left unprotected. And in that most opportune time, and I have to make an observation here. How many of you know by experience that the enemy of our souls is an opportunist by nature? He's looking for a vulnerable time. He's looking for you when you're down, when you've dropped your guard, when you least expect it. The enemy comes in like a flood and because he's an opportunist. And here's the deal. I don't look for a devil behind every corner or under every rock, but let me say something, and I'll quote Dr. Rice Brooks. He says, I don't look for a devil around every corner, but I'm also not going to ignore the obvious. And right now we get a picture of the Amalekites, picture of the enemy, raiding and stepping in. Look what happens. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. They had destroyed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. Another translation says they crushed it decimated this community to the ground. And you can imagine the fear and everything that went through those 600 men with David. And look what happens in verse 2. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. That's interesting. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, look what they did. They wept until they could weep no more. Let's just pause here for a moment. Have you ever gotten to a point where you cried so much, you wept so hard that you had no tears left to weep? Yeah, I'm sure many of us have. I have. Have you been so decimated, so drained of your emotion, your feelings, your, your courage, 
discouraged as opposed to encouraged, so much so that you, you literally just went into a numb place. Yeah, I've been there. I went through a season where I went to church in Lubbock with my brother, and I was so numb, I was so emotionally devastated that I, was just, I would just sit there, and it was, almost like, it was almost like I was watching everything through a fog, and the sound, it was like I was under a blanket, and it was all muffled. It was like ordering a hamburger at a bad restaurant that had a bad speaker system through the drive-thru. It was just this, this and I, I just would leave. I would, didn't stop going because I knew I needed to be there, and perhaps my spirit was receiving something. But I'm telling you, in my emotional state, it was flat affect. There was nothing there. You ever been there? Put yourself in the place of these men as they come back home and they find everything devastated, burned, crushed, and their children, their families, their wives, gone. And they didn't know if they had been killed or not. They didn't know. There was no one there. Everything is decimated. Everything they had, everything that was precious to them was taken as spoils of war. And have an interesting response. Verse 5, David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. Now look here in verse 6. David was now in great danger. Well, why would he be in great danger? I mean, they're gone, right? But look who he's in danger from. David is now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they begin to talk of stoning him. So this is David, and the reason these 600 men were with David is because they actually believed that he was the one who was anointed to be the next king. He was set apart, and they had stayed with him through thick and thin, through wars and fights and running and living on the lamb. And after all of that, they believe that he is the rightful heir to the throne. And in one moment, after one situation, they're ready to kill him. Welcome to Leadership 101. You can go from a hero to a zero in a nanosecond in leadership. Can I get an amen? And look what happens here. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Now, I want to talk to you about this. And in fact, I want to read it to you in the New King James. Same verse. Now David was greatly distressed. We saw before he's in danger. For the people spoke of stoning him because... Look at this, how this reads. The soul of all the people was grieved. When you grieve in the soul... That's everything you are. The soul is the makeup of who you are. It's your very being. They were grieving from the core. And not to mention what the women and children were experiencing as hostages and prisoners of this, of this horrible group of people, this terrible army, this evil army. And here they were, now in exile, not knowing what's coming next. Can't even imagine what those children were experiencing those precious ladies. The soul of all the people was grieved. Notice it says all the people. It didn't say most of them, some of them, a great number of them. It says all. Do you know who that includes? It includes David. David's devastated and on top of his own grief from the soul, 
he is now under threat to be killed by his own people because they got to blame somebody. In their grief, they're looking for someone to blame. Now look what happens. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. In the old King James it says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. I love that. David encouraged himself. Do you know that the, the, the word encourage literally means to inspire courage? When you encourage another person, you're literally providing lift for them. And you're inspiring courage in them. When they leave your presence, if they're encouraged, they're at a higher place than when they met you. So we're here to encourage one another. Scripture is very clear about that. To provide lift for one another when we're having a rough go of it. But how do you encourage yourself? How do you strengthen yourself when you've been discouraged? Your courage is gone. There is no inspiration for courage. It is gone. How do you encourage yourself in the Lord? Well, let's see what David did. And by the way, just so you know, when we read in the Old Testament, we understand that Jesus is on every page of the Bible. Can I get an amen? Jesus, David was a type and shadow of Jesus. In fact, when you see David going out to fight Goliath, it's easy for us to insert ourselves into David. That's, we're so egocentric. We do that. It's, oh, it's about, all about me. So here I am fighting the giant. No, no, no. It's not you. You're, we are the Israelites standing on the sideline rooting for Jesus to go fight the enemy on our behalf. We're not David. We're actually the, the, the cowards on the sideline saying, go get him. Go, you're our champion. Go get him. And we send this little kid, this little shepherd boy, without armor, out into a battle, and we watch him fall or fell the giant. But we often insert ourselves. We've got to be careful that we don't enter, insert ourselves too much, but we need to recognize the duality of this, that David is a type and shadow of Jesus. So it's Jesus that goes out and takes the champion out. He's the one who fights our battles. Amen? Same thing here. We've got David, a type and shadow of Jesus, who now is facing betrayal from his own people because of loss and grief. How many of you know grief is a weird emotion? You ever been there? I'm telling you, it is a weird emotion, and yet it is a gift from God. It reminds me of the old pressure cooker my mom had. We have an Instapot now. Annette's terrified of it because she's read stuff online. Like, it'll blow your head off. It'll take your arm off. And so she's making me, like, release the pressure and do all that stuff. It reminds me of the old pressure cookers, though. And mom had this big pot. I think it was aluminum. And it had this big, heavy, heavy weight thing that sat on a stem. And as that thing got really hot, it'd start to go, and it'd start making these noises as the steam and the pressure built up. But if it got to be too much, it would begin to rock, and it would let off steam as needed. That's what grief does for you. Grief is your pressure release valve. When there's a great loss, and you're grieving from your soul, as we see this, God brings grief and allows us, and it hits us a million ways. One moment you're happy, the next moment you're sad. One moment you're depressed, another moment you're angry, and then in another moment you can be laughing about something, and then you're down, you're down subterranean in the dumps in, in the next hour. It, grief is a weird emotion, and yet it is a gift. And I always tell people who are in a place of loss, permission to grieve. Grieve well, grieve fully. 
Let it have its course. God's got you. He'll walk you through and help you navigate grief. But in grief, in grief, Jesus' own people wanted to kill him, and they did. In grief, David's own people wanted to kill him, but there was reprieve. Now look what happens. The people spoke of stoning because they were grieved. Every man for his son and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. Verse 7, then he said to Abiathar the priest, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it. An ephod's an interesting thing. It's a priestly vest, a garment that you would wear. It had a breastplate, and in that breastplate it had a compartment or a container that contained something called the Urim and Thummim. Very interesting. These were actually, and depending on who you read, but I've heard it said like this, it was almost like, like dice, like, like yes or a no, and you would inquire of the Lord, and the priest would use the Urim and Thummim to literally roll the dice, so to speak. I think of the old magic eight ball. Remember those? You know, you'd shake it up, and then you'd ask it a question, you know, does she like me? Does she, is she, is she have a crush on me? And I think not. You know, okay, all right. <laughs> then you do it again, all right? Two out of three. So, so we, that's how we played with that stuff. But it sort of gave you this, this idea that there was some otherworldly information, some, some enlightenment coming. But, but the priests would do that, and they would use the Urim and Thummim to discern the will of the Lord. Interesting point here is that David calls to Abiathar, he says, bring me the ephod. Now, again, scholars are split. So was David calling Abiathar in, in, the, in the custom of the time to have Abiathar determine and discern the Urim and Thummim as David inquired of the Lord? Or was David himself stepping into a priestly place to say, bring me, because when I read it, it says that everyone was grieved in his own soul and they all wanted to stone him. And you've got to wonder about Abiathar himself. I lean toward the fact that, that David was alone in this. And David says, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it. Verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this truth? Shall I overtake them? And he, the Lord, answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. David goes before the Lord and asks. He inquires. Listen, we see this pattern all through Scripture. Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all those things will guard, will garrison your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. We're to go before the Lord and ask. And so David does that. He leans into the place. But I have to believe that it was more than just Urim and Thummim because David had cultivated an intimate relationship with God out in the wilderness tending sheep as a young man, as a young shepherd boy, playing his guitar, playing his harp, singing songs, writing psalms to the Lord. David had cultivated an intimacy because not only was David a warrior, he was a poet and he composed many songs and psalms. And I have to believe that his inquiry wasn't a simple yes or a simple no. I think in his grief, he defaulted to what he knew. And that was God is good. God is faithful. God is a good shepherd. He taught me as a shepherd, as I shepherd. God is good. And I have a feeling that he went to the Lord with that spirit. And here's what he heard in light of that. Pursue. 
David inquired, he answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Now there's a promise. Now there's a promise. But is David done? Is David finished? How often have we inquired of the Lord, Father, show me what's coming in 2020. Give me a word. Give me a, my one word. Mine's joy this year. Give me a word. And that's an encounter. Give me a word. And he gives us a word and we go, okay, we're done. Write it down. Take it away in your Bible. What if God's word is actually an invitation to join him in his work? What if a word from God, an answer, is actually an invitation to action not an invitation to sit. Look what David does. This is impressive to me. It's a few verses later, but immediately, immediately, there's no waiting. Once he has the word and he knows the will of the Lord, because he knew the ways of God, now that he knows the will of God, he takes off and steps out on the word of God. Did you get that? I don't think I could repeat it, but it was good. <laughs> Just saying. Somebody write that down quick. Give it to me later. So look what he did. He led David down. And who's he? They found an Egyptian in the desert because they took off. When they got the, the word of the Lord, and he knew the will of the Lord and the ways of the Lord, they took off. And they found an Egyptian in the desert who was sickly because he had been serving the Amalekites. And he got sick. They discarded him. And look what happens. He led David down, and there were scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking. There they were, the Amalekites. They're partying. They're enjoying, they're reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. Verse 17, David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking. Let this be a word of encouragement to you. Nothing was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything which they had taken from them. David, what did, what did he say, church? Recovered what? All. all. David recovered all, just as the Lord had promised. But David had a part to play because he was quick to obey the will, the word, and the way of the Lord. So, I want to make this real simple and end with something I hope we can wrap our hearts around as we launch out into this new year. So here it is. How to encourage yourself in the Lord and keep it real simple. And this is based on what David did and his responses and also other passages of Scripture. Here's the thing. When you find yourself discouraged, and listen, it's going to happen. There's going to be a day when no one's around. There's going to be a day when your support system doesn't show up, you're just going to find yourself alone. It could be circumstantial. It could be situational. You've moved to a new place. All your friends are back somewhere. And you are going to find yourself in a place where it's only you and God. What do you do? How do you encourage? How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Here it is. Number one, get alone with God. I'm telling you, we have got to pull away. When Jesus was tired, when Jesus was overwhelmed, what did he do? The Bible says he withdrew often to a quiet place or to a barren place to be with his father. He withdrew. He got away from the crowds. He would get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake just to have a little bit of shut-eye 
even in the middle of a storm. He was so tired, he passed out in a storm. Why? He needed to get alone with God. And I put it this way, step out of the fray. Step out of the fray. Why? Because there's so much going on right now. We went to Cracker Barrel over the holidays. And don't ask if it was keto-friendly. And so we went to Cracker Barrel during the holidays, and it was jam-packed. I mean, there was a 30-minute wait, and you do know Cracker Barrel is basically a garage sale with a restaurant attached to it, right? So people were all at the garage sale. People were in the restaurant. It was jam-packed. And we go in, and we sit down, and there is such a din of noise. I could barely hear Annette across the table because of the, because of the voices. Sometimes, when we got out in the car, I did not turn the radio on. We just sat there in blessed silence for a few moments. <sighs> There's so many voices in your life right now. So much going on right now. that Sometimes you've got to stop the madness, press pause on the drama of life, and step away from the fray. Get out of the fray. This is what he did. In David's situation, he spent time and he had already prepared his heart. He had been with the sheep in the desert. He had been with his men. He would just move off to a cave and go away by himself. David knew how to pull away. In this situation, it was a situational issue. Everyone turned their back on him. He was alone. Step out of the fray. Here's another one. Go directly to God. Bypass crutches and go-betweens. We have so many things that we use to help us get to God, how about just going direct? How about just, no, don't call Russ, don't call Jason, don't call Jimmy. How about just going to God yourself? Because here's what I'm going to lovingly tell you. If you ask me what I think God's telling you to do, I'm going to say, what is he telling you to do? What are you hearing? You can hear him as good as, I do not have, trade secret, I do not have a red phone to God. I wish there was. I don't have one. I get it just like you do. I get it in the shower. I get it in my truck. I get it, I get it walking up and down the hall. I get it in a conversation. I get it just like you do. I get it in my community group from those that we go to group with together. We hear God together. Go directly to God. Bypass the crutches and the go-betweens. Here's another one. Because that's what David did. He just went direct. Here's another one. Be specific with God. David asked a simple question. Should I pursue? Should I pursue? And he got a simple answer back. Go, pursue, overtake, recover all. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, the pagans babble on and on because they think they're going to be heard for their many words. And Jesus is saying, keep it short. Be direct. You don't need a speech to talk to God. Just talk to Him. I think He wants to hear us more than our speech. Amen? I think He loves us that much. So be specific. Be clear, specific, concise. Here's another thing. This is, again, what David did. Be quick to obey. When you hear the Word, we know His will, because His will is His Word. We know His way, then we just do it. We, we get up and do it. Be quick to obey. Step out, here it is, by faith on His Word. And when I say His Word, I do mean this book, but I also mean the Word He speaks to your heart. 
You step out on it, and we walk by faith. And wouldn't it be nice as we, if we always saw, but we don't always see. Sometimes he calls us to step out by faith and not by sight. Sometimes we get to see, sometimes we don't. Jesus said, how blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. They're blessed. As we step into a new year, we've got to learn to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Not because I'm anticipating you being neglected, abandoned, abused, someone turning their back on you, but life happens, right, family? I want to invite our worship team to come on up. We're going to end with one song. Our prayer team is going to be up here. Why don't you guys come on up? As I pray, I want you to prepare your heart. This is a new year. Clean slate, new chapter, fresh beginning. As we step into this thing, let's step in together. Ready, ready to hear, ready to see, ready to know. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege of walking by faith. Thank you that there are times when you allow us to see and others where we just have to step out and trust. So thank you, Father. Thank you for David's example of one who was so close to you that when he heard your voice, he acted. He stepped out. Father, may we be quick to obey. May we be quick to hear, to understand. I pray for all of my friends here, right now, here, that as we step into a new year, Lord, I don't feel that it's a striving step. It's a resting step. From the posture of rest, we labor. From the posture of retreat, we execute. Father, give us grace. Give us grace. We honor you. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen and amen.